Welcome to Journals of Self-Discovery. Well, hello everyone. I hope that you're doing well today. I want to make sure that you are taking advantage of all the resources that I've put together for you on the podcast. Uh, You may not know, but there are show notes for every episode. And if you go to spiritualteachers.org forward slash podcast, you'll see a list of each episode and then there's a link. If you follow that link, you're going to find notes about each episode, which give links to some of the resources that people mention, like books and movies and those sorts of things, as well as what I thought were some of the highlights from each talk. So make sure that you're checking out the show notes at spiritualteachers.org forward slash podcast. Now for this week, we have Paul Resendez. I actually first heard of Paul Resendez because he did a blurb for the back of a book that Bob Ferguson and I made called Images of Essence. If you haven't seen the book, well, you should. It's on Amazon, or you can get it at your local bookseller. It's a book of photography and poetry. And Paul, who is an excellent photographer, wrote a blurb for the back of that book, which is quite nice. But I really didn't know anything about Paul Resendez. I had went to his website at the time, but I just didn't dig into it at all. He seemed to be a photographer, interested in nature photography, and then he also did something with tracking, and I didn't know what that was about. Well, what's it been now? Probably six years later, maybe? I got an email from a friend who said, Hey, you should check out this video by this guy. Paul Resendez. It's called the Mindful Tracker. So I took a look at it. It's on YouTube and I'll have a note to it of course in the show notes. And I was really impressed by Paul. He just came across as someone who was definitely speaking from his own experience, using his own language, and using the events of his life to frame his spiritual path and to communicate his teachings. I was really impressed by what he had to say and just by the the sense of the guy that I got through watching him on that video. So I shot him an email and he agreed to do an interview. So I hope that you enjoy this episode with Paul Resendez. Again, thank you Paul for joining me this morning. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to do this. The opportunity. It's great. I uh, normally, I, I frankly, normally, I know more about the people that I interview. I have had the opportunity to watch your mindful tracker videos that are on YouTube, um, which was very helpful. Uh, I think one of the th- the first things that I'm curious about is. Is there a is there a, a point in time at which you would say that uh, a spiritual search began for you? Mm, boy, I have to go 
way back. Um, I am 74 mm-hmm. years old. Well, I will be in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And around 30 years old or in my late 20s, I really started asking questions. I had some very uh, powerful things happen in my life. Um, At one point I was sentenced to prison and that was a Mm wake-up call, although I did get probation for possession of marijuana and uh, I did get probation Mm -hmm. so that was a wake-up call and it just really you know you have to pause and ask yourself what life is about I think sometimes when we're at a low point in our lives Uh, That's when we have an opportunity either to get mad, (laughs) get angry, uh, get depressed, Mm -hmm. or ask some serious questions, you know? What is life about? Who am I really? You know, is is there really a God? Mm -hmm. And I had to ask that question, too. And I think it really has to be sincere. Most of the time, we're looking for self-gratification, which is to be expected, you know, that's what people look for. But when the truth becomes more important than that, then I think there's a possibility for something to happen. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, when I'm I'm guessing from the timeline that this was somewhere in the in the 1960s, maybe late 1960s or mid 60s, when you began asking those questions, were there resources out there? Were you able to find people or books or, or things that could yeah. help you? Oh, sure. There were lots of resources at that time. There was uh, J. Krishnamurti. There was Bubba Freejohn. (laughs) There was Alan Watts. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a lot of resources at that time in the form of books. And I read Mm -hmm. (laughs) just about everything I could get my hands on and practiced meditation and yoga and went through all the loops and jumped through all the hoops trying to, you know, get it or just find out who I was and get to the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, it basically was a search in self-inquiry which I think there's a lot of people involved in that these days. Mm-hmm. And, and for you, that, that question, who, who am I? Uh, for, for some people, that question might, might mean something along the lines of, well, what, what am I supposed to do with my life? Or... Or for other people, it might mean something much, much deeper than that. Can you, 
I know it's been a while, obviously, but can you expand a little bit on perhaps the different forms that question took in your mind, that self-inquiry? Hmm, I'd have to go back a bit. I had quite a colorful life. I was the leader of uh, two different notorious motorcycle gangs, which doesn't come out in the videotapes you watched, I don't think. No, yeah, no, you surprised <laughs> me with that one. Yeah, so I, I did leave, lead a colorful life, you know, and pursued pleasure to the extreme when it came to the motorcycle mm -hmm. gangs, partying and drugs, and went all, over the top with, with all that. And I was the leader of some of those gangs, not just a, a follower. And, you know, the identity at that time was a macho man. And, you know, mm -hmm. you either um, became prey or you got tough. And I, I learned how to get tough. But at some point, uh, don't ask me why, but I started reading Plato and started mm -hmm. asking questions. Uh, things were getting pretty wild in my life and I was starting to think, I, I got to get out of this before something really bad happens. And uh, I started to ask questions about myself. And one of the first questions was, what's, what's fear? I wanted to conquer fear. Here I was, this macho man, right? It's all about conquering fear. But at some point I realized that the whole machismo game I was this macho guy because I was afraid not to be. Mm -hmm. So the whole undercurrent of machismo was fear. At that point, there was a small awakening to the fact that why play the game? You know, the game was rendered um, useless. So that, um, was, mm -hmm. that was a turning point in my identification. That was one of the turning points. And, and I did get an opportunity to get out of those clubs, but it took getting arrested and almost... Uh, killed by the police uh, for me to get out of that and find, you know, and change my life. And I looked towards yoga and uh, started reading Krishnamurti and St. John of the Cross at the same time. I was studying both people, just trying to, at that point, just trying to get away from my past and trying to find out where do I go from here? What's life really all about? And mm. my book, The Wild mm -hmm. Within, is about that life and about that those gang-related 
stories and the transition that we're talking about now. So I have a, a whole book I did at the time for Penguin uh, about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is, uh, and I know I, I, can, I can relate to some of your story, not necessarily the motorcycle gangs, but this this idea of questioning the identity that I've been living up until a certain point of time and and wondering what you know what are my true desires what are my true interests and and even what is this entity called Sean what is it where does desire come from? I think they can go um, in, in different directions, you know. At one point in my life, it went in the direction of Macho Man. But um, from there, it went in in the direction of being spiritual. And I was brought up Catholic, and I wanted to be Catholic again in the worst way. So that was a new identity I was trying to get back to. And I was married to a divorced woman, and I couldn't take the sacraments. So I wrote to the Pope, Mm -hmm. and I did a year of celibacy waiting for the answer, for the Pope to annul my marriage. And Mm -hmm. I did all kinds of crazy stuff like uh, crawling up and down the La Chalette Shrine, where you go through all the stages of the cross, the crucifixion, and pray and do all that kind of stuff for a whole year. I did that. Then the answer came back from the Pope. Wow. No. <laughs> no annulment. And I went, whoa, hmm. wait a minute. And I realized that my identification with Macho Man and the authoritarian principles of that, I was just caught up in another identification. All I did was change hats. And again, attach very much Mm -hmm. to this identification of being a Catholic with its authoritarian principles again. And now it was all shattered. And I really, at that point, was okay wait a minute, I'm asking myself again, who am I? What is this all about? Is there a God or isn't there a God? What's the way forward here? (laughs) And I was lost. I was just Mm -hmm. like, uh, what's the truth? I just want to know what the truth is. I don't care anymore what it is. Just want to know what the truth is. doesn't have to be there is a God or there isn't a God. Just what's the truth? Right. Right. And that that seems like a critical milestone to me because a lot of people want a certain kind of truth for, for things to be a certain way. And it sounds like your question, though, is more neutral than that. So truth becomes 
the most important thing. And, and, and that brings, without asking, a certain quality of attention to your life. And I think that's important to realize it, that it, that that comes without an action on your part. Any action on my part would have been self-centered. It would have been for self-gratification. You know, sometimes we're searching for truth, mm -hmm. but what we really want, some kind of self-gratification. But I think at some point it can sure. get beyond that. The truth becomes more important than self-gratification. Did, did you find that, you, that at any point in time you were identified as, oh, I'm a powerful yogi or an amazing meditator or that sort of thing? Um. When I, I was doing yoga, I started doing yoga after that. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point hard for me to attach to any identification because as they came up, they were seen. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there was one attachment I had while I was a, a Hatha Yana yogi and had a, an ashram in Bellingham, Massachusetts at the time. And we had a, a school in Providence, Rhode Island, too. Um, then I had read Krishna every book. Actually, every book Krishnamurti had out at the time I read, and his message seemed to be, and I talk about this in the videos, the Mindful Tracker videos, his message at mm -hmm. the time seemed to be, pay attention. So that was kind of a mantra for me. It was subliminal in the background, there was something that said, you got to pay attention. you got to be incredibly aware. You have to be aware of every identification that comes up, every footfall, every breath. And I was practicing that in many ways without realizing it. It was an authoritarian principle that was set up in the background that I was not aware of. And at some point to me, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but at some point, a scene came in that again was not of my asking. Because here I was, walking in the forest, paying attention to every footfall, every sound, the, every little breeze that came along and the smells that came along with it and the sound of the wind in the pines. Mm -hmm. 
and I was paying attention. All of a sudden, there was a scene that came in, a realization that the one who was paying attention was the identification with a self. A self that has awareness, has control over awareness, a self that has control over thought, the self that is the doer, the one who is going to be paying attention, that self was paying attention. But that self was created by thought as a separate self, separate from thought, that was watching thought, had awareness, was paying attention. But it wasn't, the realization was that that was not capable of attention at all. It was not capable of seeing its predicament and the division it was creating. The division of the thinker and the thought. The separate one, the separate self, was unable, incapable of attention. But there was attention at the same time. There was seeing happening at the same time. But it wasn't the seeing created or practiced by the self, by the thinker. This awareness was the awareness of all being, all beings, the whole universe was coming awake in this. This moment of walking in the woods and, and that happening, I, uh, one of the quotes from your, from your video interview was that uh, as soon as seeing happens, thought grabs onto it. Uh, did did you have that happen after after this experience that all the the thought system started in again saying oh well I did something in order to make that happen look what happened to me look at look at this awareness that I have now did that come up for you or did well, this wipe the slate clean yes and no and I'll explain. So, nothing, there was a realization at that time that nothing could make that happen. Nothing I could, everything I ever done was folly when it came to making hmm. that happen. But, <laughs> thought still moves. And I happened to be driving a semi down the road which was a part-time job I had, down a busy expressway, and a thought came up that said, does that mean I'm enlightened? And the absurdity <laughs> right. of that struck me as a cosmic joke. There was thought again, grasping to claim it, grasping to... I, I, 
have an identification with it. And I started laughing just uncontrollably. I could not drive that semi. I had to pull over to the side of the road and just hung over my steering wheel and just laughed and laughed and laughed for quite some time. It's a good thing no trooper came along because I wouldn't have been able to talk <laughs> to him. <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. So um, what I find is uh, when I had my awakening, it was when I was around 30 years old. And I've had a lot of time since then with that. And what I find is that a lot of, well, I don't know about a lot of people, but people will have these awakenings. But then they see anger come up in their lives. And they go, well, I'm, I'm awake now. Why is there anger in my life? But they, they are young with that, and they don't realize that even if a person wakes up to the falseness of self, there is chemistry in the brain that is embedded and habitual. There are neural pathways that have been built, and they're still there. And sometimes buttons can mm -hmm. get pushed and those mechanical things, just the brain being mechanical, and you will see anger come up. But now it's coming up in an awakened state. There's no one there to fight with it or say it shouldn't be there. You, there is nothing to do with it. it you, you realize, okay, well, there's a mechanical process here, and it just got triggered, and there's just a being with it. There's just a letting it be, letting it move through. So I don't think that enlightenment means you're beyond something like that happening. It does atrophy. If you don't use those muscles, they just atrophy, and they come up less and less, and at some point, maybe they won't come up at all, but who knows? <laughs> you see what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Mm-hmm. You, uh, you mentioned something else about atrophy, and I'm... I'm trying to find it on my list of questions. I I think what you were saying was that the self-reflexive quality of the mind, that that was a muscle that would atrophy over time? Yeah, that, that that's a, a way to talk about it, yes. So, you know, when you're a macho man or you're this incredibly spiritual person... Uh, there's still all kinds of self-concern there. There is a doer. There is a separate self that is identifying with that. Even if it's nationalism you're identifying with or whatever. That is really... The brain 
there is areas in the brain that are dedicated to those functions. And all because mm -hmm. you wake up to the fact of the falseness of those functions and identifications doesn't immediately erase all that biochemistry. That whole area of the brain is still there, dedicated <laughs> to all that. Mm -hmm. And although you begin to reside more in the, what shall we call, the unlimited, and your energy resides more with that, that whole chemistry is still there and those buttons can get pushed. At least that's my experience. And when, you know, people tend, I think, to seek enlightenment and to seek satori or whatever they, they call it. So they're totally free of that. They're totally free of... Hmm suffering Absolutely. and they think um you know i'm going to get it but that's all self-concern that's just all the same part of the brain operating yes i think that goes back to your differentiation between uh, a passion for truth versus wanting to be a certain way. I want to be peaceful. I want to be happy. I want to be blissed out all the time. Uh, and that uh, there are a number of people who equate enlightenment with peaceful, blissed out, happy, and I want that. I want right. those qualities right. for myself. We're, we're seeking hmm. pleasure. <laughs> in all kinds of different ways. Some of us, you know, I tried it in all kinds of different ways. and um, That's just one of the ways people seek pleasure, peace. Um, you mm -hmm. know, it's a natural human tendency. I'm using the word natural loosely. <laughs> but it's something we inherit. I, I, Do you think that there is, is there any way to, for a person to work at increasing their passion for truth or let's say purifying the desire that's driving them to, to search for enlightenment so that it's not uh, a thing that they want to add to themselves? Or does that just have to happen naturally? I think it has to happen naturally, but people are, are uh, naturally going to pursue peace, comfort, stability, right. security, and that's okay. That's okay because mm -hmm. while that's the process, when that is moving, then we have the opportunity to learn about that process. 
And we, you know, when we're in relationship uh, with our spouse or when we're in relationship with other beings, uh, we have the opportunity to learn about relationship. If we go, go into a cave and just meditate, um, that may even make it more difficult. Because, okay, so when anger comes up, that's a real opportunity. That is mm-hmm. a great opportunity to learn about anger. Usually we're trying to resist anger. We're angry with anger, right? It shouldn't be there. Right. You know, it's, it's bad. Uh, but boy, what an opportunity. There it is. Here I am an opportunity to observe. Not intellectualize about it, not judge it, but just to observe because it seems to me that that's where the learning happens. It happens during observation. Sometimes our observation can be Self-centered, sometimes is an observation or a scene that comes in that it just wants to know the truth. And if that anger's moving, when that scene comes in, there can be an awakening to our processes, to, to the fragmentation we've created within ourselves. So I don't think it's a matter of avoiding anything, but just observing what's arising. Mm-hmm. Do you have any any recommendations or suggestions that you typically give to people in terms of cultivating, seeing, or or observation? Well, obviously I don't think it can be cultivated because then again that is a self-centered activity. Right? It is. Mm -hmm. But if I'm going to give advice which I don't usually do but the only thing I think that people can do is self-inquiry. And and self-inquiry for you means what? Observing thought, observing our desires, our feelings, as they move, whether you're sitting in meditation, watching the thought process, or watching the, the, your reactions to another human being, watching anger come up. There's a lot of good books on self-inquiry. There's a lot of really good teachers out there that are doing self-inquiry and helping people with self-inquiry. And just uh, all I mean by that is self-observation, learning about who we are and who we are not. 
And that may start mm-hmm. off as, um, you know, self-concern, but that's okay. You just need to realize that that's there and move with it and observe it. Uh, do you have people who who are coming to you as as Paul Rosendez's spiritual teacher, that sort of thing? No. I, I generally have avoided that. You know, I had my ashram. I did the mm-hmm. yoga thing. I was a Hathayana yogi. And uh, people did come to me uh, in those days for that. Um, people came to me as I had, I've had about 60 apprentices when it comes to tracking, animal tracking and nature mm-hmm. observation. And they got a lot of what we call inner tracking <laughs> uh, through that mm-hmm. whole process. Mm-hmm. That whole process was, for me, an opportunity to communicate about what we're trying to talk about and point to. Um, and I have an online discussion group called the Diehards, and we discuss these things online. The people from coast to coast in, uh, in Europe on that discussion group. Uh, and that's about it. And then I have my book, The Wild Within, and several other books, uh, which are not necessarily related to what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Have you found photography uh, to also be a vehicle for pointing towards this inner tracking or well, observation? You know, photography to me is about observation. That's what photography is. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to say, I, I do it mostly for my own pleasure, although I do make a living from it. Um, but it's a a creative um, venue for me allows me to do something creative, which I like. Um, and it's about observations. So, I mean, I'm traveling uh, the East Coast just looking for the beauty in life, and it's a nice lifestyle, and uh, that's why I do it. Mm hmm. Do you have uh, do you have a, a sense of being guided through life? Do you do you know what what you need to be doing next, or or is are things just kind of free flowing for you? In some ways, I would answer that question as things are um, improvisational. Um, I was just writing on my online discussion group just recently about, you know, about the current state of the world. I'm thinking of 2017 and all the divisiveness we see in the world and the anger and hate and the authoritarian principles all trying to beat out each other, um, you think sometimes, oh, gee, I, I just need to, what can I do, you know? I need to do something. But maybe it's, it's not about doing, 
but more about what you don't do. I can't see myself getting attached to some belief system. I can't see myself getting attached to some authoritarian principle or some nationalistic principle. So I'm not going to um, participate in that. And I wonder what would happen if we all weren't participating in that. Um, but I was trying to get to your question, actually. And then I asked, what guides the animals in the forest? What mm -hmm. guides a forest eco ecosystem? That is my guide. Mm. That that which is being all beings is the guide. Not in the sense of an authoritarian idea. It's not that at all. Although that is coming and going in the unlimited. So if, if I have a guide, that would be it. <laughs> kind of hard to call it. Mm -hmm. It or anything, for mm -hmm. that matter. So in most cases, we're guided by authoritarian principles, right? And we, uh, our belief systems or nationalistic principles and we can't imagine letting go of it. It seems like if we let go of those principles, of those belief systems, our lives would fall apart. There would be chaos in the world, but the, our lives are falling apart and our lives are all fragmented uh, because of those things, not, you know. I don't think they're helping. So we, we need to wake up. We need mm -hmm. something else, a, a different guiding principle that's not based on thought or feelings. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the name of that group, the Diehards, that's very intriguing to me. Did you come up with that name? And if so, oh, that, that was a silly coincidence. You know, we had the discussion group online for a long time. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a big, long list of people. And we had decided to cut it down, um, to winnow it down to the diehards, the people who were really into it. And that's how it got its name. <laughs> right. That's all. just something simple like that. Nothing. <laughs> no, actually, uh, Paul, I'm a little worried. It sounds a bit like a motorcycle gang, the diehards. <laughs> not sure what's going on there. Yeah. Well, I have to look at that. <laughs> and and these and this group is people who are are more interested in the the self-inquiry is that the, those are the sorts yep. of discussions 
Yes, it's focused on self-inquiry. It's focused on what we're talking about. Gotcha. If you would read some of the material, you would see it's exactly about what we're talking about. And there's people from all walks of life. There's, uh, you know, from a neuroscientist to uh, psychologists to old hippies in the hills. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. a, a real cross-section. Young people, old people, um, a lot of different... Even have a grandson, even, that's in the mm. group. So. Mm-hmm. I can relate very much to being being in the natural environment and and finding that that facilitated self-inquiry do you did you find that for yourself and do you feel like i mean is that something that you would recommend to people or do you think that you know if i'm living in the midst of new york city that i can do self-inquiry there just as well as in the woods in Vermont? Well, I, I think uh, a person doesn't have to leave New York City to do self-inquiry, but I, I will say this, that when you're in New York City or in that kind of environment, you are surrounded by thought. Hmm. It, I mean, this room, I'm here in, in the middle of the forest, but I'm sitting in this room and all these computers, which I have three of them in front of me here, and the room, the fireplace, the film on the wall, old film, they're all a product of thought. You know, all these video games, people are kind of in a, a loop with thought here. Okay, so so that all stimulates the thought process. It keeps us in the head, in other words. It keeps us in our heads. Mm-hmm. But when you walk into the forest, you walk into the past. You walk to where we came from, whether it's the seashore or a deep forest or a jungle or a desert. You walk back into the past and there you are more uh, maybe closer I think you could say you're closer to your origins your ancestry and I think it's it's healthy I think it's quieting soothing now, you know, I have to admit, somebody from the inner city might not be <laughs> have that experience at all. Good point. Because it's so alien to be frightened. Mm-hmm. I've taken inner city kids out, these tough inner city kids, out into the forest for programs for, for different teachers who gave them that opportunity. And it, it was amazing for them. In some cases, they were frightened, and in some cases, they were in awe that just like, in, in some cases, changed their lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're losing it. We're, we're losing contact with nature. 
and it's losing contact with who we are. Hmm. <laughs> We're getting farther and farther away from who we are. And it might not hurt <laughs> to spend some time with nature. Hmm. And, you know, you see that in the, the Mindful Tracker videos that you've been watching. Mm -hmm. One quote that struck me from those videos is that uh, you said the teacher and the student have to be on the same level for communication to occur. Uh, are you familiar with or have you seen a, a wordless communication or an energetic exchange? I don't know how, how you might describe that or if you even know what I'm talking about. But I'm curious if well, that, that what you said comes from an experience like that. Yes, it does. Um, I had that experience with George Leoniak, the person who is doing the Michael Track videos with me. Um, he had an awakening right at my kitchen table while we were talking. So I've seen that happen also with other people. I know it happens. I don't necessarily know how it happens, but that it does. And I think it happens when there's no teacher-student relationship at that point that each person is in that quality of attention that is the passion for truth. They're both just searching for the truth together and then something can happen. When there's no self-concern in the way. Now I have to qualify that. There may be self, this is the hard thing for thought to understand because this does not happen as a sequential, it's not a sequential process. It doesn't happen in time. It's not a result of some action. This is beyond that so that even if one of the persons is, you know, involved in self-concern, and that's pointed to while that self-concern is happening, there's the possibility of waking up to that self-concern, seeing it in the way the person has never seen it before, even while it's happening, the passion for truth can be there at the same time, and then a person wakes up. So this whole notion that, you know, you must have a quiet mind, you must still the mind first, uh, you must stop anger first, I think is a misconception. That while anger is happening, that while self-concern is happening, that's when it's most important for the unlimited to come in and expose the whole thing. 
And it's all there at the same time. There's blindness and seeing at the same time. And it's that paradox that is the awakening and the, whoa, something out of time has happened. There is a learning there that has happened, that is understood, and it's understood beyond what thought can understand. And thought, although is informed of this, it still is not that which is understanding and seeing. We get into perhaps a bit of a paradox here in that what can a student do? What can someone do? A person, well, a person can't do anything, yet if a person <laughs> does nothing if they don't leave the house it seems like uh, their passion for truth is going to be really low it's going to be a faint a faint flicker versus someone who is trying everything that they can uh, to somehow overthrow the system if you will that that they're mm -hmm. enslaved to yep well, I've certainly done that. I would expect people would do that. They probably should do that, but it's really no should in this game. It's just a matter of seeing the truth for themselves. I can say, oh, that's all folly. What good does that do? Right. You, you know, I mean, you're either going to believe me or not believe me, and what good is that going to do? Mm -hmm. You're caught again, you know, copying to some belief system, find out for yourself. Go there. Try to uh, overcome the self. Watch that whole process. Try to be spiritual. Try to be humble. Hmm. And watch what happens. Mm -hmm. What's that about? So a person needs to... to Observe that for themselves and learn that for themselves through observation, through the actual process. So we're in no way saying that the process is bad or you shouldn't do it because it's not spiritual. So we don't want to tell people not to do it <laughs> because then, you know, they don't have the opportunity to learn about it. Mm -hmm. What what I see is a lot of attempts at shortcutting going on, especially in certain circles, um, in the non-duality circles. Teachers who mm -hmm. you go to a you go to a talk with them, and the word is well, right here, right now, you're awakened. There's nothing that needs to be done. There's no one that there who can actually do anything. So. There you have it, uh, and and I think that there's an intellectual understanding, perhaps that people get coming away from those meetings, uh, but it doesn't seem to stick. It, it, they seem to get stuck in an endless round of going to these meetings where they're told that there's nothing to do, and uh, and that's as far as they get. 
Yeah, I think that there, it might behoove us to look at that whole process and whether or not there's not another belief system coming in about the fact that, oh, there's no self, there's nothing to do, um, and then it becomes an intellectual thing. That's a good point. There's not an actual awakening, but just an identification with a new principle of how it all is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not about how it all is, but it, it can get tricky for people who are in the non-dual movement. To It gets tricky to express this and to communicate yes. this. Um, and I usually try to see where a person's coming from because you cannot articulate this correctly. There's no way to really correctly articulate this. And that, and that is why your quote about this, you know, the, the teacher and the student being on the same level uh, for a, a different form of communication to occur, it seems like that's a, that is the, a, a wordless understanding between two it, people. That's, that's a good way to put it, is a wordless understanding. And you come together in the same mind. So, you know, David Bohm, who I knew, and was a very important person in my life, David Bohm, the physicist, I'm not mm -hmm. sure if you're familiar with him. He was friends with Krishnamurti, and they did a lot of right. dialogue session, right. sessions together. And he developed this way of dialoguing, which um, I've been involved in a lot. And we still have dialogues on occasion, and George and I will be having dialogue sessions at, at his place. Um, so, so Boone would like to get people together to dialogue and to explore together the mind and how it works, do self-inquiry together, exploring together with, and I think, you know, the possibility there is for a group of people to wake up as the same mind. In other words, there's all kinds of ideas and different conditions. Each person has their own personal uh, condition. We're all conditioned in different ways. We all have different experiences and all that is coming together in the same mind. It's all coming and going in the same mind. When one person speaks, it's arising in that mind. And for, for a group of people to realize that together would be phenomenal. And I, I, from knowing Bohm, I think that was his hope in doing these dialogue mm. sessions. And in that case, everybody is on the same level. And, and, you know, most of the time when people get together, they have their own 
agenda, their own self-concerns, their own belief system that they bring into the table. And then all these belief systems and agendas uh, compete and try to, you know, convince each other that I have the truth. Right. Right. So that doesn't go anywhere. It just creates conflict and fear and anxiety. And uh, (laughs) that's what we see in the world, right? We look out there and it looks pretty bad, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. But if people come together with the passion of truth, then it doesn't matter, does it? Then everybody's opinion, everybody's everybody has a different condition, a different possibility. Say we're trying to solve a problem in the world. It might be pollution or something like that. These days we're all fighting about what to do. But if if people came together in the same mind, they wouldn't see another person's idea a threat. They would see it as an opportunity to explore. And the more diverse op- uh, opinions you had, the more thrilled everybody would be because you have all these different opinions to explore and investigate. There's no self-concern. There's no threat about these different opinions. They're just an opportunity now. Mm-hmm. But we don't live in a world like that. We live in a self-centered world. So the the dialogue session that you have upcoming is that is that essentially the diehards, some of the diehards who are getting together. Well, no. Well, sometimes the diehards will get together. Um, George is going to be running programs uh, from his. Uh, he has a MindfulTracker dot com, mm-hmm. and um, starting I hope this year, he will be trying to put some dialogue sessions like that together. Mm, Great. Um, And we've done that through the years. We've done it for decades, actually. We've done all kinds of dialogue sessions with different people in different groups. And uh, we've we've experimented with that a lot. And a lot of other people are experimenting with that as well. I mean, there's the David Bohm groups, too. There's, There's David Bohm groups out there. Well, I was going to ask: Is there a is there a, a specific format that these dialogues follow, or are there guidelines somewhere? Well, Bohm had some basic guidelines. Uh, you can find it on the internet. Uh, okay, I'd have it'd be a struggle for me to find them, but I could find them. Um, but again, that that. Uh, that applies some structure which sometimes gets in the way. Hmm. You know, when we do our dialogues, they're really very open. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious, uh, mainly because uh, I've had some gatherings out here in California at my home, and uh, but I haven't had anything since earlier this year because I just I reached a point where I, I just didn't know what what format it just seemed like a group of people were getting together and and like you're saying there's different agendas 
different things that people were looking for and there and there just wasn't an and an overall structure that I could find that was satisfying. Right. We've had different dialogue groups for, like I say, for decades. They've kind of petted out at this point, and they've ended up online at this point mm -hmm. on the diehards. But we would get together, and we would just sit in silence until somebody was moved to speak. Mm. Uh, and, and it would take on a life of its own, usually, and it would often go into very, very interesting um, places. Um, it, and at times could be very intense. I think it, it helps uh, to have people in those groups who are awake. Mm -hmm. Are there any books that you typically recommend to people who are who are getting in self-inquiry well i have my my own book of course the wild within mm -hmm. and everybody promotes their own books right right um there's Adya shante mm -hmm. um there's um scott killaby oh yeah and he is quite the character um, and he has a way of, I think, articulating this quite well. Hmm. Um, and there's, the, there's uh, Eckhart Tolle, who is speaking about it really differently, but who seems to be coming from the same place. Um, and then there's the old folks, like uh, David Bohm, who was a physicist, J. Krishnamurti, Alan Watts was, I think, way ahead of his time, mm. <laughs> an amazing guy. Um, uh, no, nobody else has immediately come into mind, but, oh, Stephen Harrison, uh, who probably is not well known. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I know, I think the I've book seen The Doing Nothing? Book. Yes, that's it. Right. <laughs> I read that a number of years ago. You know, and you know, it, it's interesting. You know, I studied Saint John of the Cross for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, just wholeheartedly. And you take somebody like Thomas Merton, who is who is capable, who was a Christian monk, mm -hmm. and he is capable of putting. Um, St. John of the Cross and Taoists together. Mm -hmm. And he can see where they're saying the same thing. And if you studied St. John of the Cross long enough, you'd, you'd realize that the, the terminology, you know, this whole social structure he's coming from is so dramatically different. But if you look deeply, you can see that, you know, when he's talking about God, he's talking about the Tao. Does it, you know, it doesn't have the same personal, it's not a personal God he's talking about. Mm-hmm. But so, so it's very interesting. There's all these various people um, that are very interesting that, that people can, can look into. Mm-hmm. And there's more. Oh. They don't come to mind. Endless. Yes.
Yeah. Uh, do movies or, or films, do those sorts of things ever catch your attention in terms of, of having a deeper message? Uh, I wish I could point out some that actually did. <laughs> well, I know one of my um, favorites is uh, American Beauty. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Oh, really? But uh, yes, American I, Beauty. American Beauty. It, to me, it's uh, it's the evolution of a person who has seen through an identity that he's been carrying for years, and begins to try to find who who is he really. Uh, and there are some uh, really beautiful moments in that film of, wow. of transcendence, uh, as, wow. as far as I'm concerned, and seeing that there is something other than this little self uh, well, carrying its burden around. Well, I have to look into that, definitely. Because, you know, I see movies and mostly people are creating these magnificent works of art, but they're basically to you know, strum the, the strings of the ego self. Right. And, you know, they're basically designed to play that instrument. Mm -hmm. And they play it very, very well. So <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> I stopped a long time ago. I just stopped watching uh, TV. I stopped watching movies. And I even stopped listening to music. Mm -hmm. decades ago, probably in my 30s, mm -hmm. because I saw that that was playing that part of the brain that um, refuses to atrophy, and as long as you're involved, even reading a novel that is pulling all those strings, and as long as those strings are being strummed, the, the muscle has a hard time atrophying. Mm. Uh, but not um, there's not many people I know that have done that. Oh, there was a there was a long period of time in my life where I did uh, the the same sort of thing you're talking about. It's like a prolonged media fast, and uh, no, you know, no. Back in those days, no newspaper. There wasn't any internet, but no newspaper. No, you know, didn't have a TV. Didn't go to the movies. Uh, I just wasn't paying attention to, like you say, those things that pull you into reaction. And, and I was trying to be focused on self-inquiry solely. Do you find in your photography, for example, uh, one thing I've felt sometimes is that the creative process, whether it's writing, photography, perhaps music, uh, that that gives moments of transcendence or opportunities for self-inquiry. Almost anything is an opportunity for self-inquiry. Mm, but point. the way I see art and the way I see the creative process might be a little different than some. Most people uh, think they're doing photography. They're creating these images. They're, you know, there's a a lot of angst over control and doing it right. But to me, it happens by itself. The, the photographs are coming to me. Mm -hmm. 
Does that make sense? And in other words, Absolutely. I might be just driving down the road and something captured my attention. Whoa, look at that. Oh, it's got me now, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm looking at this and I'm modeling at it and mm-hmm. um, it's happening to me. It's moving me. And then when I get it into Photoshop, it's the same process. Mm. You know, you try, you try this the way a plant grows, right? You try different tonal ranges, you try different contrasts, uh, and it just comes to you as to, oh, this works. Oh, this, this looks great. Let's leave it there. You know, so it's, it has its own life. So, you know, we, we normally live a life where control is so important and there's so much angst over it. Life's just not happening. We don't give life a chance to happen by itself and freely and flower, really. Right. Yes, I, well, I appreciate your point that everything is an opportunity for self-inquiry. Just know that there are times I've run into people who, who say things like, well, I just don't know what to do. They've, they've been on the spiritual path for a long time. They've, you know, they've meditated morning, evening, and night and have read hundreds of books and have gone to see teachers and spent time on retreats and and they get to a point of where they just they feel like they've done everything they don't know what else to do Uh, it's almost a fatigue that sets in so sometimes i suggest to people that they try something along a creative line and that maybe that will reignite that passion for truth yeah i think sometimes when the fatigue sets in that's they're in an interesting place for something to happen and ultimately, um, I'd like to find one person who can tell me how it happens, meaning what? See, but there isn't a catalyst to this. It isn't, awakening isn't a reaction to something. Hmm. So people are trying to do something to get this other thing to happen. Definitely. But it's not in that realm. It it doesn't happen according to something. It's not from an it's not an effect of anything. All effects, all happenings are coming up within that. They're coming and going within that. Even the spiritual experience is coming and going within that. But there's something that's not coming and going. And it's in all our lives, and it's more than close. More than close. We could say, you know, it's our very being. You have all this stuff that's coming and going in your very being. And the coyote in the forest, the eagle soaring up there, that whole reality is coming and going 
in being. And, and then sometimes I think, too, that when people do have spiritual experiences, like Saint, Saint John of the Cross, one quote I love of his the most, any spiritual experience is the work of the devil, hmm. quote, unquote, because you get attached to them. Right. There's an identification. I made it. <laughs> you know, that's what it's about. And then you're trying to chase it. You're trying to recreate it. Then you want it to be that way all the time. Mm -hmm. And that is just an experience that is coming into being. But there's something you can't experience that is not experiential. The experiential is coming into being in that which cannot be experienced. And ultimately, that's who we are. We're actually both that the dance of the unlimited and the limited or the dance of the conditioned and the unconditioned dancing together. But we don't usually realize the unconditioned with all we're aware of is the conditioned. Paul, if if people were inspired by this interview and wanted to get in touch with you, or would you recommend they just go to your website or should they read your book first what do you what should they do uh, i well if they they read my book they would get a real um grasp of what it is we we've been talking about i think mm -hmm. uh, also i think the the videos the mindful tracker videos are very important but i do welcome i have all kinds of ongoing dialogues and conversations with different people. I do not call them students. It's just us working together on this. And anybody's welcome to uh, email me at photos at paulresendis.com, which you have. Um, or they could get on the Die Hard group, the online dialogue. Um, I will be doing some programs with George that will involve at Rowe Conference Center. Great. That will involve tracking in the outdoors, but also what we call inner tracking, which is this work you and I are doing. Mm -hmm. And that's, a, that's about it. That's a lot. <laughs> It's good to hear. So I don't. Uh, is there much in in your part of the country in terms of self inquiry or groups or that sort of thing? Obviously, in California, it's it's like we're overwhelmed by it sometimes. Yeah, I think I'll move to California. No, I, I don't recommend <laughs> no. it. No, but um, there are people out here in the Northeast. Yes, indeed. Well, that's that's all I have, Paul, in terms of questions. Okay. Uh, Very interesting. I, you know, again, I really appreciate this opportunity to get to talk with you a little well, bit. I, I appreciate it as as well. Hey, everybody! I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Paul. If you would like to meet Paul, he will actually be at the April Tat Foundation meeting. 
The dates on that are March 31st through April 2nd, 2017. And to learn more about that, you can go to tatfoundation.org, click the About button, and then look for Current Events.